Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The latest edition of National Geographic magazine is devoted to a single topic, climate change. Special edition is organized into three categories, answering three questions. How do we know it's happening, how to fix it, and how to live with it? Today on Access Utah, we'll look at Stanford Professor Mark Jacobson's state-by-state roadmap outlining how the U.S. could achieve carbon-free energy by 2050. We'll examine what Utah's energy mix would look like with 100% renewable energy. We're talking with Dennis Dimmick, who's National Geographic Magazine's executive editor for the environment and contributing writer and senior environment editor Robert Kunzig about how Germany is trying to kick its nuclear and fossil fuel dependency. We'll explore practical guides and what you as an individual can do to make a difference. And we'll learn how people in Greenland and the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati are adapting. We welcome in now Dennis Dimmick. He's executive editor for the environment for National Geographic magazine, as I mentioned. He's guided the creation of several major projects, including the April 2010 issue on global fresh water, the 2011 series called Seven Billion on Global Population, and the 2014 Future of Food series on global food security. Dennis Dimmick, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Tom, great to be with you this morning. And we uh, welcome in Robert Kunzik, who's a scientific journalist specializing in oceanography. He's senior environment editor for National Geographic magazine. And uh, his article, The Will to Change, explores Germany's energy revolution in this edition of the magazine. Robert Kunzik, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Glad to be here. Let me uh, start with uh, Dennis Dimmick. Um, This is uh, from some publicity materials in some polls. About 25% of Americans deny climate change is happening at all. Others know they should care, but want to be spared the details, and they believe they can't do anything to affect the outcome. And you're quoted as saying, these are the people that this edition of the National Geographic magazine is is pointed toward. I, 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 I do hear that from some people. It's a big problem. It's a huge problem. I don't know if I can do anything. Uh Absolutely, and that's what what we're trying to do with this issue. We, we of course, in the beginning, we do talk about the the scientific evidence that shows that the planet is warming and it's having an impact on uh, weather, sea levels. Uh, we're losing our ice, but what we try to do here is that we then turn 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 towards focusing on uh, how to deal with it. And we we felt when we organized this issue that uh, for years now we've been hearing about the problem, but it's time to start having a discussion about what what, uh, can be done individually, community, state, nation, and worldwide to begin to confront the issue and do something about it uh, so that people don't feel hopeless, but they can begin to uh, paint a, a picture for what uh, a world could be like uh, as we move away from coal, oil, and gas and try to create a future that's driven more by essentially the the current power of the sun and the wind. And as we go along, I'll be interested in hearing about Germany's experience. They're, they're making some solid progress, it, it sounds like. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, what Utah's future might look like uh, in 2050 if we were to achieve this goal from Professor Jacobson of 100% carbon-free energy by 2050. Uh, let me turn back to uh, Robert Kunzik here. Um, you have a, a preface of sorts to uh, this edition. The headline, this year could be the turning point. Do you, uh, I don't know, do you, do you feel hope? Do you have a sense of hope or uh, gathering that from people you talk to ahead of the the climate change conference in Paris? Yeah, yes, I do uh, have a sense of hope and even 
cautious optimism. There's a lot going on this year that suggests that these, this long string of failures to reach some kind of an international agreement, which has been going on for, for 20 years now, that, that we might break it this year. Um, and, and I think one of the main reasons to think that is that they've really changed what they're going for at these climate negotiations, these international climate negotiations. They've given up on the idea that we can have a treaty that will really tell every country exactly what it has to do to, with specific numerical goals. Instead, they're, they're, it's a bottom-up negotiation. And so far, uh, something like 130 or 140 countries have in advance submitted plans telling other countries what, what efforts they're going to make. And they're they're in some cases quite substantial commitments, and uh, especially the ones from China and the United States uh, made last year. I think give give good reason to hope that this this something serious could come out of the Paris negotiations. And as you write in this this preface, uh, in 2014, global carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning did not increase, even though global economy was growing. Yeah, that is that is a very heartening trend, and I should say the emissions didn't increase. The amount of carbon that in the atmosphere continues to increase, but for the first time, our emissions plateaued, and that's what they have to do before they can turn and start heading down. So, yes, that was a very uh, heartening development. Unless we get, uh, I guess, too optimistic here, I'd, I'd like to uh, to go to Kerry Bus. Uh, this is an interesting test case. Uh, it's, it's a nation in the uh, in the Pacific, and uh, most points in this nation is no more than eight feet above sea level. So, if we predict that uh, the oceans are rising and will rise, it's an existential threat to uh, to this this little nation. I'm not sure which uh, Dennis or Robert you want. So, to... yeah, let me jump in. I think what also uh, to um... We talk about Kiribati, but I think it's important to to also discuss Greenland because what we did as part of organizing this issue was to help people understand the linkage here that we have two cultures. We have the Kiribati people in the, in the Pacific who are uh, essentially losing their land because of rising seas. And it's, it's more than just a physical thing. Uh, what's happening is uh, drinking water uh, supplies, groundwater supplies are being salted with uh, saltwater intrusion and the, and the land that they try to grow crops on, it's increasingly saline. And as we know, like from irrigation, that, that in time sal- uh, salting uh, damages the land and makes it difficult to grow crops. And so we're seeing that in this island nation. But, but the Greenland part of it also is the hunters, the people who depend upon ice in Greenland, uh, the cold. They need the ice and the cold. So the ice is melting off of, of places like Greenland and other continental ice sheets. And uh, that's where the water is coming from that's driving sea level rise, in addition to the increasing temperature of the oceans is actually making the seas rise, rise themselves. And so the point that we were trying to make really here was that you have two cultures that are thousands of miles apart uh, across the planet, yet in one uh, important regard, they are very intimately connected because these changes that have been wrought essentially by industrial activity and human activity uh, that these people had no 
influence over uh, is affecting the future of both of these cultures at the same time. And to further underline that point that we're this all interconnected, um, this article on uh, Kiribati, uh, to many of the uh, people in Kiribati, it seems deeply unfair, I'm quoting from the article, that their country's climate troubles are not of its own making. And then the, the, the writer goes on to quote a former uh, Prime Minister of Tuvalu, who, says, who said uh, that climate change was a slow and insidious form of terrorism against us, speaking of people in the, in the Pacific. Right. So that, I mean, what you're seeing is that this is a, there's a long, slow shift that's happening. And we see it on the coast of the United States ourselves. I mean, uh, when you look at a place like Florida, we did a piece earlier this year on the the impact of rising seas on low-lying coastal areas of the United States. And we focused on Florida, but we're already, we, you know, in Utah, you don't see it, but in the East Coast here, it's very visible. And like we have cities in Southeast Virginia, Chesapeake and Virginia Beach that are having to essentially raise their streets as a, as a defense against rising seas. Mm. So do you think this is, uh, you know, the, the evidence keeps coming in and uh, as I quote at the beginning of the program, about 25% of Americans deny climate change is happening at all. Of course, that's a decreasing percentage. Do you see progress on what you could call the public relations front? Well, but I think it's more than public relations. What we're really saying here is, look, uh, science has a role in society. And if you're willing to accept the role of science in society, then then you're also willing to fly in jet airplanes that are a result of science. And and uh, so it, it's not like this is some public relations or marketing effort, and, and it's not a belief system. What we're talking about here is that we are we are willing to align ourselves as an institution with the scientific studies that uh, are backed by the National Academy of Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the Royal Academy of Science, Very all the major scientific uh, academies and institutions of the planet. And what our role is, is we're just trying to help pe- guide people people explain to people uh, what these what these studies mean and uh, what are the implications and then we can go from there we've already been discussing that in depth now for more than a decade on the pages of the magazine it's time to turn the corner and start having a discussion let's move on beyond whether or not let's start having a discussion about what can we do as individuals, communities, states, nations, and the planet, and global civilization to try to confront this and actually create a a, a better, brighter, cleaner future for uh, our children and theirs. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will start talking about this. This uh, special climate change edition of the National Geographic is organized into three categories. How do we know it's happening? How to fix it? How to live with it? And we'll get into talking about what Utah's energy mix would look like with 100% renewable energy. Uh, Stanford professor Mark Jacobson uh, has a state-by-state roadmap. He says the U.S. could achieve carbon-free energy by 2050. And uh, we'll also explore practical guides on what you as an individual can do to make a difference. When we come back, I want to uh, jump into how Germany is trying to kick its nuclear and fossil fuel dependency. We'll talk about that and much more, of course, following the break. President Obama rejects the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline as bad for America and the planet. Ultimately, if we're going to prevent large parts of this earth from becoming not only inhospitable, but uninhabitable in our lifetimes, we're going to have to 
keep some fossil fuels in the ground rather than burn them. What this means for U.S. policy and the Paris Climate Summit. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. There are many different reasons to get involved in the community. Getting involved can help you connect to others, make new friends, expand your network, and build social skills. Getting involved can also give you a boost of self-confidence, self-esteem, and life satisfaction by giving you a sense of pride and identity. Here are a few suggestions to start getting involved in. Hospitals, libraries, daycare centers, rehabilitation centers, community theaters, historical restorations, animal shelters, sponsoring a local sports team, joining a charity, or hosting a fundraiser, and many, many more. Your ideas can be as creative and unique as the community you serve, so get out there and take action. This is Nicole Jackson with the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Colligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 65 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey Colligan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at colliganlogan.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, hope you check out the latest edition of National Geographic magazine. Of course, all uh, across all its platforms as well. Uh, the uh, issue is devoted to a single topic, and that's uh, climate change. And the articles are, are uh, organized into three categories, three questions: How do we know it's happening? How to fix it? How to live with it? And we're talking with the magazine's executive editor for the environment, Dennis Dimick and uh, with contributing writer and senior environment uh, editor Robert Kunzig. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. That's our toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can uh, join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Coming up, we'll uh, take a look at uh, what Utah's energy mix would look like uh, if we were to achieve carbon-free energy. Uh, the goal set out by Stanford professor Mark Jacobson is for the U.S. Uh, that we could do that by 2050 nationwide. Also look at uh, some things that you as an individual can do to make a difference. I'd love to hear from you. What are you doing? What do you suggest that others could do? I'd love to hear your personal experience at uh, the number 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Let me turn to Robert Kunzig. You have a very interesting article in this edition of National Geographic on uh, Germany. You visited Germany. Uh, they are pursuing some very ambitious uh, goals. What What are their goals? Uh, their goals, Tom, are to... Uh they're focused mostly on reducing carbon emissions, and they are trying to reduce their carbon emissions, the, the, the planet warming carbon emissions, by 40% by 2020 and by 80% by 2050. And to do that, they're in the middle of a big switchover to renewable energy. They're now getting... Uh, as of last year, the, uh, 27% of their electricity comes from renewable energy, and the latest I heard just this week was that this year they think it's going to be up to a, a third. And so to make a comparison, I think in the U.S. it's 13%? 
Uh, something like that, and, yeah. a, and a very large percentage of that, of course, is from the hydroelectric dams in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, on a, if you compare the two countries, Germany is uh, pretty far ahead on, on building out solar and wind, even though Germany doesn't have anything like the amount of sunshine that, that we get in places like Arizona or, or, or Utah. I wonder if you could, uh, it's quite impactful to take a look at specific examples. You, at the beginning of your article, you, you take us to Hamburg. Yeah. Um, well, Hamburg was a, it, it, I started the art article that way because I think uh, that there's a place there that just makes a great symbol. I mean, the thing about Germany is uh, the country was pretty much flattened by World War II, by the bombs in World War II. And that, uh, and then after that, they were a divided country for 45 years uh, and sort of the front line between two nuclear super, superpowers. And as I show in the article, that has had a, a big effect even on their, their current energy policy. But in Hamburg, there's a really cool place. It's, it's, a, it's an old flak bunker that the Nazis built, a seven-story concrete cube, essentially, that was just where, where the concrete was seven or eight feet thick. And it was meant to shelter people uh, from the bombs and also to... Uh, it had anti-aircraft guns that were meant to shoot down the bombers. Now, it didn't work when the Allies finally came to bomb Hamburg. They set off a famous firestorm that just really destroyed half the city. But that flak bunker now has been converted into a renewable energy bunker, and they have uh, solar panels on the on the top and on one side. Uh, they have a, a hot water tank in the middle, uh, in, in, inside where people used to hide from the bombs that's, that's heated by biogas and that in turn provides hot water to about 1,800 or 1,000 homes in the surrounding neighborhood. So it's a small part of what Hamburg or Germany needs to do to convert to renewable energy, but it is a, a great symbol of, uh, of what's a really an ambitious transformation. Hmm. Now, Germany, apparently, uh, at least part of this is the, the government is subsidizing um, renewable energy, aren't they? The, the, and, and consumers are paying a price through a surcharge on their electricity? not quite a subsidy, really. It's a really interesting policy, and we, we have it in the United States, too. It's, it's, uh, California is doing something similar. It's, it's, it's a policy called a feed-in tariff, and, and really, it, Germany is a great example of how big changes can, can result from small initial beginnings. And uh, the, the feed-in tariff basically says, if you produce electricity with solar panels on your roof, you can sell it to the grid. And they first created one of these by, by law, by national law, obliging the utilities to buy such electricity from consumers uh, in 1990. And then in 2000, what they did was they raised the price of the uh, – that, that, that individual producers, individual consumers who make electricity with their own solar panels or windmills could get into something where you could actually make a small profit on it. And that just led to a flowering of solar panels and windmills in Germany. And it it was that small policy change, rather than uh, any big uh, subsidy on the part of the government, that, that led to this blossoming. So they I guess you could call it a subsidy, but what it really is is they are given – the utilities have to pay a good price 
to people who make renewable electricity, and that price is then passed on to consumers uh, who pay it on their electric bills, not as a tax, but on their electric bills. And it amounts to about, for the typical German consumer, about 20 bucks a month on their electricity bill. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not trivial. It's 240 bucks a year, but it's not crushing for most people in Germany. That's uh, that's one of the levels here in public radio. I was just <laughs> thinking, you know, um, um, and that's kind of how I think Germans see it. It's it, it's they're willing to pay that uh, for the larger goal, and and that leads me to the next question. I wonder if you could tell me about. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Energy Venda. This is kind of a yeah, Energy Venda. Yeah, Energy Venda. This is a kind of a, a, a cultural movement at a, a, at least a goal. Yeah, that means energy transition or energy revolution, if you want. That's just their, their term for the process that they're uh, going through. And as you say, the, 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 they, are, they are paying extra for it. But the remarkable thing is how much uh, public support it still has. If when they do polls, they get something like 90% of people saying, uh, we believe in this, we support it. Um, even though it is they don't like it. No one likes it that their electric bills are a little higher, but they they accept that it's necessary. And there's even a remarkable pride you find when you're traveling around Germany and talking to these people. They they're they're proud of the fact that they're they're taking a leadership uh, role in this, and they and and that they're showing some, you know, it's sort of a a way to show off their technical competence. One of the questions I had going in, uh, to, you know, because we. I guess the question is, why Germany? You know, why not, you know, France next door? One of the answers, surprisingly enough to me, that you have in the article is the forest. Germans love their forest. Yeah, they have a, the, the, the Germans do indeed love their forests. They have a, uh, there's a sort of an origin myth that they have about themselves that they trace to the Roman uh, historian Tacitus. I mean, the, 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 the Romans, uh, a few of the Roman legions met a bad end in a place called the Teutoburg Forest uh, back in, oh, what was it, uh, around the time of Julius Caesar, I guess. But um, the, the, the Germany used to be mostly forested. And so this, idea that they are forest people has survived from then. It's a bit of a romantic idea, but it has an effect on, on people even today. It's a, uh, it, when the forests, German forests, were threatened by acid rain back in the 1980s, this became a real uh, national cause that, uh, and, and a, a, a sort of a source of environmental awakening in general, and, and the, the realization that they had to transform their energy system because the fossil fuels were the source of the acid rain that that, that realization probably dates from then mm-hmm. i want to turn back to uh, dennis dimmick and uh, and bring it back to to the u.s um you have an article here by uh, stanford professor mark jacobson who outlines uh ambitious audacious goal uh, he says it's possible the U.S. could become, you know, get all of its electricity from renewables by 2050. Right. So what we're doing here is trying to uh, imagine what the United States could look like uh, if we moved in that direction. And we're not going to, we're not naive here. We're, we, we understand that there's uh, political, regulatory, and social barriers that are there and that we have an energy infrastructure in place that 
took decades and more than a century to be put into place. But at some point, what you have to do is you have to help people imagine what something could look like. And I think this is what the value in Jacobson's work is. It helps us imagine what it could look like. For example, a state like Utah, which is blessed with uh, much more uh, solar energy falling on its landscape than, say, Germany. It's because of its latitude, and it's in the southwest where the U.S. gets a lot of energy. And so uh, Jacobson, for example, he has he has uh, done an analysis on all 50 states based on things like wind and where where the where the the wind gradients are and where the solar sun where the sunshine uh, comes down to the ground and like for example uh in the best of all possible worlds uh, we would be looking at uh, something in uh Utah that just a moment that certainly uh, could be seventy uh, percent uh, or more of the yeah. renewable energy in the state. Uh, and I've got it up here too. So, uh, Robert, you say you have it up? Yeah. The uh, well, I looked at Jacobson's plan for Utah and the way he. Uh, and first of all, it's important to to stress just how ambitious his uh, plan is. He's talking about not just getting a hundred percent of our electricity. Uh, by 2050 from renewable sources, but 100% of all our energy. That So he's, his plan envisions that cars, all our heat, all our cooling, our cooking, it'll be all electric, or in the case of cars, also hydrogen. So we'd actually be producing more uh, electricity. And he thinks uh, in Utah you could get 40% of it from wind and a little over 50% from solar, of which 8% would be, 8, 8% of that, 50 would be on people's rooftops, and the rest would be big solar plants out in the out in the desert. A little bit of geothermal, and then a very small percentage of hydro is what is what his plan calls for. And he estimates that it would take less than one percent of the land in Utah. The actual footprint of the of the uh, windmills and of the solar plants would be. Uh, less than it would be about 0.15 percent, but if you add sort of like the spacing between the windmills and count all that, you still you still end up to less than one percent of the land. So for Utah, it, you know, 70 percent would be wind and solar, 40 percent wind and 27 percent. Like uh, oh, 90 percent. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I have to do my math correctly. Um, which, which is, and and again, he, I guess you, you're stressing this. This is a blueprint. There is some pushback. In fact, you have in the magazine, uh, you quote Stephen Brick with the Chicago Council of Global Affairs talking about this plan. It has zero chance, he says, I guess by 2050. Well, well but you got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're already seeing, I think, that the world has been surprised in uh, just the past few years of the dramatic decrease in the cost of solar photovoltaic uh, panels. And we're uh, seeing... Uh, large numbers of those installations. So, you know, nobody nobody thought 20 years ago that we would be this uh, incredibly computerized planet. But, uh, you know, Moore's Law took over and we saw uh, such dramatic increases in technology and cuts in costs. So, I mean, we're just trying to sort of help people imagine the, the art of the possible here. And that's that's important, isn't it? Uh, it as you say in the magazine, it, this would be it's very ambitious. 
It would be the Apollo program, their state highway system, nuclear bomb, and military's World War II arsenal all wrapped into one. But it's uh, uh, you need to focus your mind on, on a goal. Yeah, you but set yourself. You, you, we've done it before, and and if we decide, if we decide as a society to actually come together on a common goal, it, it it's it's quite amazing what we can do if I, we put our mind uh, and effort to meeting a goal. Robert, I wonder. Um, Germany has its energy venda, the the energy revolution. What would be the equivalent? Do you think in in the U.S. How would it connect up to culture and uh, and everything else? Well, you know, our history is very different uh, from Germany's. And in particular, we don't have the same, for that reason, we don't have the same aversion to nuclear power. Um, Jacobson's plan includes no nuclear. If you allow nuclear to play a role, which many environmentalists would argue you should, then then the task gets that much uh, easier. But it seems, but we do have some values in common with uh, the, the Germans. I mean, the idea of stewardship, the idea of thrift, I think, is a is a deeply conservative value that really fits with the idea of renewable energy, the idea of not wanting to be dependent on the man, of, of making your own energy. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's important to, I guess, to look ahead and to assure yourself that the, the task is doable. But in the end, the, it, it's not going to, we're not going to make this transformation according to a preset blueprint. That's not how it's happening in Germany. It's going to happen in in steps, and a lot of it ideally will happen from the bottom up. That's uh, that's how it's happened in Germany, the grassroots. A lot of it's grassroots. It really has. It doesn't feel, when you go to Germany and talk to Germans, it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of the Apollo program, even though they, they the Germans themselves will make that connection. It's something much more organic than that. It's not a big national program being steered you know in all its details by the by their federal government it's they they put in a framework and a lot of it has then just sort of happened from the bottom up and now some of the bigger players in the energy market the utilities and so on are scrambling to to catch up with this development I'd like to hear from each of you on the, on the question of nuclear. I'll start with Robert. Uh, so Germany has made the decision to phase out nuclear. They're well on their way. This is a contrast to their neighboring, you know, to their neighbor uh, France and some other nations. Uh, that removes a, a big potential, you know, solution point to the problem. But of course, nuclear has its problems as well. Yeah, and I tell you, when I when I went to Germany, I was deeply skeptical of their decision to do that. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, getting to 100% carbon-free energy, which seems to me a, absolutely crucial in this century, you don't want to start taking away solutions. But at least for the Germans, I came away convinced that it was right for them to do it. And 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 the reason is that this. Their experience of being a war-torn country, their experience of being at the front lines of a, you know, a standoff between two nuclear superpowers, their experience also of the Chernobyl disaster, which, even though it was in in the Ukraine, uh, a thousand miles away, in Germany, you people were told to keep their kids in their house, and 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 they're still, you know, you still can't go picking mushrooms in the black forest because they might still be radioactive so that that is that had a very emotional impact on them and and that created a big motivation for change in, in a way that you know climate change which is sort of a slow creeping thing 
doesn't do. So for them, getting off nuclear was a, was an important motive. I don't think that means we in America have to start closing down our nuclear plants and in order to make the transition. I, I think nuclear can still be be part of the solution, but it's, it, the solutions aren't going to look identical in every country. I wonder what uh, what you think, Dennis Dimick. What uh, what about the U.S. and nuclear? Sure. Well, so about a fifth of our kilowatts currently come from nuclear. And uh, when we start talking about nuclear in the framework of a transition to renewables, that to me becomes uh, a valuable tool uh, to bias time to allow us to make the uh, transition to renewables. Uh, uh, still, I think we need to keep in mind that uh, at the end of the day, there's still going to be waste from nuclear that we have for decades in this country. We have been trying to solve the problem of what to do with the waste. And so as long as we're, we're uh, using it, fine, let's, let's use it. But then let's also use it as a bridge to a renewable future. I think one point that needs to be made here is that unlike fossil fuels, uh, for example, renewables, once you have the infrastructure in place and once you're taking advantage of the power and the sun and the wind, the energy's free. And so you're, there's, there's not going to be, like, you're not going to have to pay for the oil truck. You're not going to have to pay for the coal every month. It's like once you, once you do the capital investment in, in renewables, then, then, then the future energy is free. And that's if, if nuclear can help us buy, a time, buy time so that we get to essentially a, uh, a cost-free energy future, then fine. Then that's a way to help us build a bridge. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Dennis Dimmick and Robert Kunzig from National Geographic magazine. Uh, their latest edition is titled Cool It, the Climate Issue. And they devote the issue uh, entirely to climate change. And they uh, answer uh, three questions. The articles are grouped under uh, three categories. How do we know it's happening? How to fix it? And how to live with it? And when we come back, uh, I want to go back to Germany uh, and Robert Kunzig met a interesting fellow. His name is Fell. I'm not sure if that's his first or last name. Uh, he says the environmental movement's biggest mistake has been to say, do less, tighten your belts, consume less. People associate that with lower quality of life. We'll talk about that. And then I also want to direct this question back to Dennis Demick, uh, this question of what can I do personally? And we're throwing that out to you. What are you doing and what can we do? More following the break programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Advancement. Participating in giving Tuesday, December 1st, providing an opportunity for alumni and friends to embrace the giving spirit this holiday season. Information at usu.edu slash giving Tuesday. About 20% of military families get a type of tax credit that Congress may vote to let expire after 2017. Well, I'm kind of frustrated with Congress right now because it seems to me that they're trying to fix things that aren't broke. I'm Molly Wood. How active military and veterans might be affected if the earned income tax credit and child tax credit expire. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Wednesday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. 
Utah Public Radio has partnered with the Salt Lake Tribune to form the Utah Public Insight Network. And we want to know how you feel about the LDS Church announcing that Mormons who enter into same-sex unions will be considered apostates, and now their children will be barred from blessings and baptism rituals without the permission of the faith's highest leader. By going to our website at upr.org, you can become a source. You'll have the chance to add your voice to this story and drive our news coverage. Details at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about climate change. That's the topic for the entire issue for this edition, the November edition of National Geographic. And we have with us uh, Dennis Dimmick and Robert Kunzig uh, for the rest of the hour. Another uh, about 10 minutes or so in this conversation. And you can join it. We'd love to know what you're doing, what you think. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So Robert Kunzig, you met an interesting fellow. Uh, his name is Fell in Germany, I should say. Here's his quote. The environmental movement's biggest mistake has been to say, do less, tighten your belt, consume less. People associate that with a lower quality of life. He says, do things differently with cheap, renewable electricity. And indeed, he's uh, he's got a sauna, he's got a pool, he's he's living pretty good, and he's living, he's living off renewable energy. Yeah, Hans Josef Fell is a is a fascinating and and guy and very important figure in the story of the German energy event. He's the guy who wrote the law that I mentioned earlier that basically allowed people to get a good price for electricity that they produced with their own solar panels or whatever. And he he benefits from it himself. He's got solar panels on his roof. He's he's got this uh you know, in his basement he's got a generator that burns sunflower oil and and I was a little surprised. I mean, you would think he's a complete greenie. He looks like a biblical prophet. He is a member of the Green Party. But when he, after our conversation, when he showed me around his garden and he showed me his sauna and he showed me the natural swimming pond that he'd created, and it's all powered by uh, uh, renewable energy, and I thought that point he made was just really fundamental. I mean, I think that the environmental movement has gone... Uh, has not helped itself by trying whenever it tries to make the, this this problem a big uh, morality play uh, the, the climate problem is hard enough without us trying to make it uh, a reason to f- fix how everybody lives their lives let's just stay focused on the central problem and that was his basic message uh, Dennis Timmick, I wonder what you think about that this this message and there are some in the environmental movement who connect the two up you know consume less that will also oh, help. But but oh, I wonder sure, overall, sure. what do you think? We're going to freeze in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. And so then nothing gets done. And so I think what where we're at right now is that this idea that it that we're not really talking about that. What we're really talking about is you can save money and energy by uh, thinking uh, how you go about d- doing things. I mean, for example, if you um if you wash your laundry in cold water, you can save, you know, uh, nearly a ton of CO2 emissions a year. Are your clothes going to be any um, uh, dirtier? H- hard to say, but your electric bill is certainly going to be, be less, or your natural gas bill. And it's the same question. If you if you are in a say if you live in an area where you can take advantage of mass transit a couple of days a week. Uh, and you leave your car home a couple of days a week, uh, what happens is that you're actually uh, 
uh, freeing yourself up. You're you're reducing carbon emissions uh, a couple of tons a year. I mean, it, it's also I think what we're seeing also is this question of smart homes, and what can we do to um, uh, install sensors that turn out lights um, when you're not in the room. That uh, I have a thermostat in my home that automatically uh, senses whether I'm in the house or not, and it it uh, lowers the heat or raises the air conditioning in the home, so that I'm reducing I'm reducing energy. And and at the end of the day, it really is something that allows me to say, hey, look, I'm saving money, and it, so it's a benefit to me. And I think that's really the point that we're trying to make. And it's not just it's not just the individual. You know, these kinds of solutions scale up when you start looking at, like, say, buildings and how how businesses are powering their buildings, how they're heating and cooling their, their buildings, uh, how they're using computer networks to monitor these things. All of these things add up, and I think that really is kind of the thing that we're trying to do here is say it's not just individuals, it's everybody all the way up. And it also really is just this question of, of like, saying, you know, if, we're, if we put our imagination to this, it's uh, anything is possible. Uh, Robert, I wonder what your feeling is on this as well, uh, you know, things that individuals can do. Uh, well, well, there's a lot uh, that individuals can do that, uh, you know, I mean, I ride my bike to work. I, I use air conditioning only when I have to, that, that kind of thing. But um, I think... Um, you know, and and where where your where the laws are in place to permit it, I ab- absolutely think people should be trying to switch to renewable energy in their own homes, looking for those opportunities. And I think it, that that is becoming increasingly possible and economical in the United States. Um, but it has to be the the key is for 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 cities and and state and national governments to create frameworks that make it easy for people to do this stuff. You know, you will you will ride your bike to work if there's a decent bike path for it. You will take public transportation if the public transportation system is convenient. Um, you will put solar panels on your roof if there is a law that says you can sell the electricity to the utility and, and if it's a cloudy day, the utility will back you up, that, that kind of thing. So individuals are important, but the, it's up to governments to create the frameworks that, that create the incentives for individuals to do it. And it won't, we will never get there with people just doing it for moral reasons. That's only a small percentage of the people who, who are motivated by that. Dennis Demick, I wonder if we'd have you follow up with that, what, uh, how, to, yeah. how to get your local uh, government think, to create the framework. Yeah, yes, and I think that obviously those kinds of decisions are difficult in this country today. Uh, I think also that it's important to understand when we're talking to individuals here, remember we're living in a world where we're dependent upon centralized generation of power, 
by and large, whether it's large hydro projects or the coal plant down the road uh, or the natural gas plant, these are all centralized and they're, they're, they're connected by a, a grid that we are all reliant upon. And uh, increasingly, we've been seeing things like extreme weather events that have impacts on, say, well, we are having droughts in some regions of this country and it's impacting whether or not water is available to cool thermal power plants. And once you start going down the road of renewables and you start thinking about the idea that, oh, well, I could I could put solar PV on my roof or I could be part of a community uh, a wind project, what happens is that you're actually breaking down the power structure and that you're taking power yourself about your own, you're taking into your own hands uh, power about the future of yourself and you're not reliant on centralized power anymore. You're essentially, you're, you're, you're decentralizing power and it actually makes the power system more resilient uh, and flexible when you do that. I'd like to, we just have a few minutes left. I, I want to talk a little bit about water in the West and it, it, it's been brought into bold relief in California this, this past season or past seasons. Um, the, the, our, our sensitivity here in the, in the Western U.S. to, to water issues and that's certainly affected by by climate change but it, i think we're at a loss sometimes what what our response should be uh, so uh, we've covered uh, western water issues uh, for a long time i grew up in the west i grew up in oregon i'm acutely aware of the role of snowpack and hydropower and uh, I, of course, the discussion at this moment is like, well, will El Nino come and save the Southwest? But that's really a short-term phenomenon. And when you look, for example, at um, uh, the long-term situation, uh, we did a piece in the magazine last October on the decline of Western snowpack, and that was based on a research uh, from Philip Mote at Oregon State, and this was a long-term assessment of uh, snowpack in the western United States, west of the 100th meridian, from more than 800 snow measuring stations for 55 years. And what it showed that in most places of the of the western United States, we're seeing a significant decline in the snow. And as a westerner, as we know, that the, the west in large measure is built on the back of snowpack and we're losing it. So how are we going to respond? Well, uh, we're, that's actually then where we're going to have to start asking ourselves uh, how much water do we need. And, and right now what's happening is that we are compensating for the loss of surface water uh, in the Colorado River Basin. We are overdrawing the aquifers and the High Plains Aquifer. We're drawing uh, east of the Rockies. We're drawing down the um, Ogallala Aquifer in the Central Valley of California. We're drawing down the fossil water in the Central Valley. And in, in, in the last time the state of California was faced with this kind of uh, drought drama was in, say, the late 70s, and there were fewer than half as many people that lived there. So it's really this question. We have decided to inhabit a dry place and so we're going to have to start looking to other places for models whether it's australia which went through a long drought or it maybe it we have to start looking at places like uh, the middle east in israel to see how they are making do with uh, little water i met uh, one uh, water scientist danny hillel uh, who uh, was creating communities that lived on four inches of rainfall a year 
Uh, I want to turn back to uh, Robert uh, finally here, to pulling back globally. What would be a good outcome in your, uh, from your viewpoint uh, to the, uh, the Paris conference? Uh, a good outcome to the Paris conference would be an agreement that, uh, that, that feels to us all like we are now on the way to making this big energy transition, and that then includes uh, a, a system for regularly revisiting the goals that have been set by each country, Some, uh, uh, sort of a monitoring system. It's, um, I, I, I think I'm, I, in the introduction I wrote to this issue, I used the example of a, a saying by the novelist E.L. Doctorow, uh, the way he described his writing, how to write a novel. He said, it's like driving a car at night. You never see further than your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. We don't know exactly what our energy system in 2050 is going to look like, but we have to start heading in that direction. And then we have to have a system for regularly making sure we're on the right path. And the Paris Agreement is going to be something a bit vague like that. Uh, but the key thing is that there will be enough concrete measures in it, enough concrete commitments to convince us all that we're on our way. We do have a caller here at the end of the show. We'll see if we can uh, fit this uh, call in. Um, and then we'll uh, close close the program. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dennis Dimmick and Robert Kunzik from National Geographic uh, magazine. So who do we have? Uh... Well, let's go to our caller. Um, next. Uh, thank you for calling. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes. Uh, in regards to what we can do, just a couple of thoughts to throw out there. One is we have what's called a citizen's climate lobby uh, here in Cache Valley where we're trying to get some legislation through to put a fee on, on carbon uh, at the wellhead and the port and, and uh, the mine and so on. Uh, fee and dividend, which it's revenue neutral. It will be returned to the, the citizens of the country. Uh, so that's one thing we're working hard on and feel that placing a price signal on, on fossil fuels could really make a difference and not harm the economy as it has been proved in British uh, British Columbia, which has had it up and going uh, now for, I think, eight years. Uh, and the other part is just what we eat uh, has a huge impact. Agriculture is uh, uh, definitely a, a, a very significant part of where our carbon emissions come from. So eating less meat and eating uh, food closer to home, that's produced closer to home and so on, I think is very important. Well, thank you very and much. It, Thank you very much for those ideas. By the way, how to how to get more information on Citizens Climate Lobby sounds interesting. Is is there a website? We will uh, we'll look that up. I did look it up here. Uh, CitizensClimateLobby.org dot org is uh, is where you could go. So we we thank our caller. We are out of time, and uh, we thank Dennis Dimmick, who's executive editor for the Environment for National Geographic magazine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. And Robert Kunzik, who is uh, Senior Environment Editor for National Geographic. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. And uh, do check it out. The, the latest edition of National Geogra Geographic It's all on uh, climate change. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll be uh, talking about the LDS Church's uh, new uh, policy on children of same-sex couples. Join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Commentator Gina Wickwall.
Veterans Day is upon us, that special 11th day in November when we rethink the debt we owe our people in uniform. But how did this day become Veterans Day? Well, in 1919, President Woodrow Wilson first proclaimed that a holiday called Armistice Day would henceforth be celebrated on November 11th. It would mark the signing of the armistice that ended World War I on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. That part I knew. But there's more to this. I checked, no, not the Encyclopedia Britannica, Google, and learned a bit more of the Veterans Day story, sort of. It appears that about 20 years after Armistice Day inception, a congressional act made it into a legal holiday. Then, following World War II, Eisenhower and many other leaders wanted to expand Armistice Day to be more than a remembrance of World War I. They wanted it to embrace all veterans. Eventually, in 1954, Congress amended a bill to change the name from Armistice Day to Veterans Day, which means that when I was in first, second, and third grades, the holiday was called Armistice Day. Then, out of the blue, its name changed when I got to fourth grade. It took me, and a whole lot of my classmates, a while to connect the two. Further confusion occurred in the early 70s when Veterans Day was yanked from November 11th and plopped down on the fourth Monday of October, so it could be part of the so-called Uniform Monday Holiday Act. After seven miserable years when no one knew what the heck had happened, Veterans Day was switched back to its original time, the 11th of November. Other problems have arisen over the years. When I was a kid, Armistice and Veterans Day was a real holiday. You put out the flag on your porch, the post office was closed, the banks were closed, and many stores and businesses were closed for half a day. But the big bonus? You didn't have to go to school. It was like mana from heaven, like Washington's and Lincoln's birthdays, a day to be free. But somewhere along the way, I don't remember exactly when, Veterans Day changed. Its school day vacation disappeared. So did closed shops and businesses. Now, as far as I can tell, banks and the P.O. still close on Veterans Day. But then both of these entities seem to occasionally board up for no known reason anyway. But what has never, ever changed during all these startups and downs about names and dates and vacation days is that everyone I know still hangs up that flag on the front porch. Everyone I know still pulls out photos of granddads and uncles in uniform. Everyone I know still closes her eyes and says a prayer of thanks that all those millions of brave veterans fought for our way of life. I know it still means the 11th day of the 11th month remains a special moment in our American life. This is Gina Wickwar.